Welcome back to Fly on the Wall. I'm Anusha, and today we have Mo Alethi, Executive Director of GU Politics, here on the pod. But first, make sure to subscribe and follow us on social media. You can find us at Fly on the Wall Pod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and at Fly on the Wall Podcast at gmail.com. Joining us today is Mo Alethi, the founding executive director of Georgetown's Institute of Politics and Public Service. Before launching the Institute in 2015, Mo spent two decades as one of the top communications strategists in the Democratic Party and is a veteran of four presidential campaigns and many statewide and local races. And he's a Hoya. Welcome back to the pod. Today, we are so excited to have Mo Alethi, Executive Director of GU Politics, here with us on the podcast. Thrilled to be here. My first time. I'm excited. <laughs> we are so excited. Um, so we'll just be getting into a few topics. Um, Mo has obviously a very amazing career um, spanning many years, many states, um, many campaigns. So we're just going to start out with Virginia politics. Mm -hmm. And you grew up in Arizona. You've worked on numerous campaigns over the years, but two really consequential jobs you had early in your career were on consecutive governor's races in Virginia, first for Mark Warner in 2001, and then for Tim Kaine in 2005. So both of these candidates won races in what was a deep red state at the time. Mm -hmm. What... What did you do well strategically that paid off in those races? So I got my start in Virginia politics actually in 2000 when I was working for then Senator Chuck Robb. Uh, and he was being challenged in his reelection campaign by the former governor, George Allen, in uh, what was the marquee Senate race of 2000. And it, we started that race uh, the sort of the, the uh, clash of the titans in Virginia politics. And we started that race down by double digits and fought our way back, but fell short. And when we lost that race in 2000, that was sort of the final nail in the coffin for the Democratic Party of Virginia. Virginia uh, Democrats had, uh, with, with Rob's lost, had lost control of all five statewide offices. Um, Bush beat uh, Gore in Virginia very handily. People thought the state was, like, gone for good. But one year later, Mark Warner gets elected governor. And it was really interesting because I jumped right from the Rob campaign to Warner's campaign. And um, I think there were a couple of reasons why Warner was able to turn the tide. Um, at that point, uh, the, the, the strategy for Democrats in Virginia was to run up the score in the cities. And Warner said, you know, we can do that up to a point, but we've got to actually reach out beyond that and, and maybe not win the rural areas, but at least do a little bit better. And we did something very early in that campaign that I thought was very interesting. Um, the, the, the state, the economy in the state was a little rough at that point. There had been a bunch of manufacturing jobs that were being lost and factories being shut down in Southside, Virginia. And the budget, the state's budget was a mess. And Warner, who was this northeastern-born Alexandria, Virginia, which is about the most progressive part of the state, uh, living um, Democrat who had founded Nextel, right? He was like this telecom guy, multimillionaire, um, starts, does two things down south 
side in southwest Virginia, in the rural parts of the state. One, we had these supporters down there that was like this well-known bluegrass band who kind of were into him. So they wrote a song for him, a bluegrass song. And we adopted it. And we started putting it in our ads. And it became like our official campaign jingle. Um, Secondly, there was this family, this well-known NASCAR racing family down in Southside, Virginia, whose son, 19 years old, was about to make his big debut on the on the NASCAR circuit and lost his sponsor right before his first big race. So we came in and we sponsored his truck. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, and the, he, the engine blew out of his truck <laughs> like halfway through the race, but it, was, but it was the campaign's logo on the side. And all these people up in Northern Virginia, D.C., just like mocked us endlessly. They were like, what is this... What is this Yankee, Northern Virginia, multimillionaire telecom guy? Like, no one's going to buy that you're Mr. Bluegrass in NASCAR. But we never asked people to buy that he was that. What we found that was really fascinating were a bunch of people down the rural parts of the state saying, hold on for a second. Y'all usually mock us for this. You're not going to mock me for my interest in Bluegrass or my interest in NASCAR? You're going to actually respect that part of my culture all right i'll listen to what you have to say now we found it was such there was such an impediment like even then we're beginning to see sort of this rural urban divide where people didn't trust each other and just assumed the worst about each other as soon as we showed a little bit of respect they actually listened to what he had to say we didn't win those parts of the state but we we far outpaced what democrats usually do people did end up responding more than they usually did to his economic message um, and then Warner won a very uh, won that race as very much sort of a centrist, pro business, pro get the job done kind of Democrat. Four years later, his lieutenant governor Tim Kaine is running to succeed him, and again we started that race down by double digits, and we knew that his opponent was going to come at us for being incredibly liberal, incredibly progressive. Virginia had never had a Catholic governor before. And Tim, because of his, um, his faith in large part, was against the death penalty. And we knew that's how they were going to come at him. Um, and so we did a lot to sort of inoculate against that very early on, making, making sure people did understand the role of faith in his life and telling his story as a guy who had spent time as a missionary down in Central America and had spent time growing up working on his father's, um, uh, the floor of his father's iron workshop. Um, the other thing we did, and that really helped when the attacks came. The other thing we did, though, was understand very early on that the demographic shifts of the state um, were pretty profound and that the urban-rural battle that had defined Virginia politics for so long was actually far less relevant and that the real battle was in the suburbs and the exurbs of Northern Virginia, of Hampton Roads, and of Richmond. So we designed a strategy to try to focus on those areas using sort of kitchen table issues. Um, and it helped, and we won. And two years later, the Obama campaign sat down with a lot of the Kane campaign to sort of figure out that ex-urban strategy, and they adopted it in a number of states that helped uh, elect Barack Obama. So um, Virginia is a particularly difficult state for comms, in particular because the D.C. media market is expensive and yeah. reaches you know um, beyond just D.C. and goes into Virginia. So did that affect your strategy, and if so, how did it? Yeah. Um, when you're buying television advertising, um, not all television advertising costs the same. Yeah. And if you look at a state like Virginia, um, 
it can cost you close to three quarters of a million dollars a week to wow. advertise in the DC market. And those ads, it's not necessarily efficient because people in DC and Maryland are also seeing those yeah. ads. Whereas down in Richmond, um, it might cost 20% of that um, or 30% of that. Uh, the problem is 40% of your vote increasingly. So somewhere between 35 and 40% of your vote is from Northern Virginia. Okay. So you, you can't not advertise there, but it becomes incredibly expensive. Um, and so you've got to be creative in how you get the message out. Luckily, it's getting a, it's a lot easier to do that today in sort of the digital era where the reliance on television is less and less. And in fact, when Tim Kaine ran for the Senate in 2012, usually a general rule of thumb a lot of campaigns will tell you is 60 to 70 percent of your budget should be reserved for television advertising. 60 to 70 percent of your entire campaign budget should be reserved for television advertising. That's how expensive it is. Um, in 2012, for the first time, we actually took our advertising budget and carved 20% of it out for digital only. That okay. was in 2012. Yeah. Now it's becoming more and more, and there are more and more campaigns where over 50% of their advertising budget is going to digital versus television. But in sort of the, that sort of the that first decade of the 2000s and into the first part of, of this decade, television was still king. And so it forces the campaigns to be a little bit more creative in how they campaign and how the candidate gets press coverage. Um, and you got to make some tough choices about when you start spending money. You might have to start spending money on television at a certain point before you know you've got the budget to sustain it all the way through and hope that it's enough to connect and, and help your fundraising. We also have the disadvantage of they start these Republican super PACs started advertising against Tim Kaine a full year before Election Day. We did not go on the air until three months before Election Day. Wow. So we were taking a lot of hits and every day watching the polls and looking at our data to make sure that those hits weren't impacting us. And if they did start impacting us, we'd have to we'd have to respond. And luckily they didn't. But it was it was it was scary at times. Up until that point, more money had been spent by outside groups against Tim Kaine than any candidate in the history of American politics, not named Barack Obama. Wow. So moving on to your work um, with Hillary Clinton in 2008, you worked as traveling press secretary and senior spokesperson for Hillary's 2008 race. So how did you work with a communications director in HQ? Uh, we talked daily. So I started that campaign not not traveling. I started that campaign headquarters-based, and my job was to focus on state and local press. Okay. We had um, you know a team that was focused on the national press. My job was to hire and oversee all of our state press secretaries in the early primary states like Iowa and New Hampshire, South Carolina, and Nevada. I cared much more about the Des Moines Register and the New Hampshire Union Leader than I did about CNN or the New York Times. And it was a great gig. Um, a couple months before the Iowa caucus, though, we began to see that the wheels were coming off the wagons in, uh, in Iowa. And so I deployed full time. I was based in Des Moines, kind of went all in on Iowa, worked with our team on the ground there. And I was there for two months. When we lost the Iowa caucus, we kind of shifted a lot of the chairs on the deck. And that's when I went on the plane full time and I became the traveling press secretary. And so I was there pretty much from the New Hampshire primary until the very last day of the campaign. Um, 
I saw a completely different campaign once I went on the road than what I saw in headquarters. Okay. When you were on the, in headquarters, you get stuck in a, in a bunker. Yeah. And you're just dealing with incoming all the time. And you kind of, it's easy to lose touch with that interaction between candidates and voters. When you're traveling with the candidate, that's all you see. That's all you see is that interaction between candidate and voters. And that's an important texture that you can't lose. Um, And why it was so important, my job was to travel with her, to work with her, to deal with the press on the ground, also to deal with the press that was traveling in the back of the plane with us. We had a full, you know... uh, uh, a full plane of reporters who were assigned to the Hillary beat and I had to work with them. And a lot of times talking to the reporters, what they were seeing was different than what the national narrative was, was different than what the DC or New York based reporters were reporting because they could see how, how voters were actually dealing with her, how they were reacting to her, how they were responding to her, the questions that they were asking her. And it's just a very different feel. And I think too often there is a huge disconnect between how people see campaigns and what's actually happening on the ground. Um, so it was a much more enjoyable uh, mm-hmm. part of the job. Um, uh, unfortunately, I got there. It was a little too late. Sort of okay. the numbers, the, num- the, the, the cake had already been baked in terms of the delegate math. But it was uh, to feel the excitement and the energy on the ground. I've never experienced anything like it. How surprised were you and the campaign by the rise of then-Senator Obama, and how did it affect your messaging? Um, I don't think I've ever been a part of a more historic race than the 2008 campaign. And even though I I was on the wrong side of it, or the losing side of it, I should say, um, I wouldn't trade the experience for anything in the world. Barack Obama was a a once-in-a-generation type of figure. I don't think anyone underestimated him for one bit uh, within the campaign. I think most people saw that he had the ability to connect and transcend in ways um, that no one else in the field really could. And so he was always, um, I think, viewed by most people as our number one uh, threat to the nomination, to winning the nomination. Um, the thing about Obama was he was, had a crystal clear message from day one. And I think that some of the people that were involved in the messaging of our campaign struggled with how to keep up with that. Yeah. Campaigns are about having the right candidate at the right moment um, in history, with the right candidate with the right message for the moment. And Obama's message in 2008 was pitch perfect for that moment, at a time when people were feeling incredibly frustrated, scared, the financial crisis, the war in Iraq, having someone that could sort of take the system on a little bit and give a voice to the little guy was important. And that was the core of his message. And Hillary had started that campaign running really on, an, on a message of experience. Yeah. I'm the most experienced candidate in the field. And what we realized was that experience wasn't as as potent as change. Okay. Um, and we tried lots of variations. We've got <laughs> the experience to make change. We <laughs> have experience making change. But at the end of the day... It just wasn't going to click with primary voters in that moment in history. So Hillary instantly supported Barack Obama once he became the presumptive nominee. Do you think that was a hard sell given how nasty the primary had become? No. Um, So after the campaign ended, I was sort of the last guy standing in the press shop. Okay. And I stayed on with her 
through the general election when she was campaigning for Obama. Okay. Um, I was wondering about two people that stayed on with her to uh, through the general election uh, in the in the comms shop, and um, it wasn't a hard sell at all. Um, she knew. She wanted to make sure every state had a chance to vote. And there was a lot of pressure on her to concede earlier, to drop out of the race earlier. One, there was sort of a, still a double or triple bank shot that we could have made to win the nomination, but she also felt it was important. We've gone this deep, let's let every state vote. Um, and so once the final state and Puerto Rico voted, she conceded very quickly. Once it became clear that he had the magic number. Um, and at that point, they made a decision together that she was going to campaign for him. Their first event after he secured the nomination before the convention was in Unity, New Hampshire. Okay. That was a very deliberate decision. And the two of them appeared on stage together. And she was out there campaigning for him very aggressively and very often. Um, she knew how important it was to turn the corner on the, um, on the, uh, uh, the Bush years and that he was the guy that was going to do it. So there was no hesitation. Um, she campaigned for him. There was some talk for a while that she, maybe he would consider her for running mate. I don't think that factored into her calculus. She just wanted to help him. And then, of course, it paid off, and he made her secretary of state at the end, um, which I know she was very uh, honored that he did that. So moving on to your time at the DNC, from mid-2013 to mid-2015, you worked as the comms director for the DNC. So how did you transition from the campaign lifestyle that you've been doing for so long um, to a lifestyle in D.C.? And what made you want to settle down in one city? So, look, D.C. had been home for a while anyway. Um, you know, after I graduated from Georgetown, D.C. was always where I came back to in between campaigns. And after the Kane campaign in 05, I started a consulting firm with a friend of mine here in town. So D.C. really did become my anchor. Um, and Hillary's campaign was based in Arlington. So I, we were, I was tethered to D.C. already. Um, and in between her campaign and the DNC, I had gone back to my firm. But the, while I enjoyed being a consultant and I had some tremendous clients, um, I began to feel like we were missing something in our political discourse. We were increasingly becoming more of a personality-based political system. And I believe that the parties were suffering as a result. And so my goal when the DNC, um, when I was approached about maybe going to the DNC, was is there an opportunity to kind of help define what it means to be a Democrat, help define the party in a way, not just the negative uh, against the Republicans, although that was certainly part of the job, um, but do we have an opportunity out of the DNC to help make a better case for the Democratic Party? And so I decided that I would do something different and, and try that. And it was a tough time to be at the DNC. Um, coming off of the Obama reelect, the DNC was, was struggling. There, it was in financial, uh, it was $23 million in debt. Wow. Um, it did not have a full staff. Um, and there were, a lot of, there were a lot of challenges at the committee. And so, so much of our energy was just trying to get it back on solid footing against an RNC being led by Reince Priebus that was sort of hitting all of its marks. Reince okay, Priebus yeah. really did sort of turn the corner for the RNC, and, and I don't think he gets enough credit for how he strengthened that committee. Um, we, had, uh, we had a lot of challenges. And so I, I feel that um, I did not 
we, we didn't do what I wanted to do. I did not get the chance to tell the story of the Democratic Party the way I would have liked to. And looking back on my 20 years in politics, I would say that my time at the DNC was probably my biggest regret in that. Not that I went to the DNC, but that I wasn't able to achieve that goal. How is running the communications of a national committee different than a campaign? And did you have to create any new strategies um, while you were at the DNC? So it is different. Like As I was saying, we are very much a personality-driven political system. Yeah. Um, candidates drive the party, particularly at the presidential level. Um, that's how you can go from, the Republicans can go from Mitt Romney being uh, and an RNC that fully supports him to Donald Trump and an RNC that fully supports him. Um, and so it is different in that um, it, it's, it's a challenge. So, and when I got there, we also had a White House where the president defines the party. So I was kind of there during a period of time when you had a president and you also had the beginning of a race to succeed that president. And so the the committee is being pulled in a lot of different directions. And your goal at the DNC is to try to sort of be the moral, not the moral, but the the, the core um, of the party's message and then also create an infrastructure for whoever the eventual candidate's going to be. Um, but it's not about the individual candidates. It shouldn't be about the individual candidates until the end game of a campaign. It should be about the bigger party and the bigger party infrastructure. In terms of new strategies, I'll say the biggest uh, thing that we grappled with in the comms shop, besides just sort of keeping up with what was increasingly becoming a very large Republican field uh, for 2016, was the rise of digital media and how that was changing the nature of how we communicate with ourselves. I, I came in starting to build an organization based on sort of traditional models, and it became very clear very quickly that that the way people are communicating is is rapidly changing. Social media is rapidly changing how people talk to one another. The traditional media outlets weren't the only ones driving the cycle. The legacy media outlets weren't the only ones driving the cycle. And you had new uh, uh, media outlets like BuzzFeed and Vox and and all these others and Breitbart on the right and IJR on sort of the center right that were all emerging. and you know, Vine, which was around for like a hot minute, was yeah. was actually having an impact in political dialogue in the way that Twitter was. So we had to um, adapt. And so we integrated, in some ways, um, the digital team, which was a standalone department, into a, all of our communication strategy meetings. And we created a new position for uh, a director of digital media Um uh, to help sort of figure it out. Um, and when I left in 2015, I feel like we just had begun to scratch the surface as a committee on how to deal with sort of that changing landscape. So going off of what you had said earlier about um, having the White House and mm -hmm. how that might have affected um, your messaging and your vision at the DNC. So what exactly was the vision that you had for the DNC messaging and how did you use that message to improve the committee's image? So... In the run-up to the 2014 midterms, we did a series of focus groups around the country okay. where um, for sort of four different regions of the country on four, cons on four different nights, um, and these were all independent voters. And it was really fascinating. The focus group moderator did something I hadn't seen before. He gave everyone a piece of paper and a pencil, 
And he said, I'm going to say a word and I want you to draw a picture. First picture, first image that comes to your mind. So these are focus groups. So you get all sorts of different answers. Um, oftentimes not fit for repeating in, in public. But you mm -hmm. did get a couple of commonalities, a couple of trends and themes. First word was Republican. And when we asked people to draw a picture, the most commonly drawn picture was a dollar sign. Okay. And when we started teasing out, like, why? What, what do you mean by that? The most general response from these independent voters in 2014 was, they're the party for the wealthy. That's all they care about. So I'm sitting there thinking, score, all right, this is good <laughs> news. All right, we, this is not a heavy lift for us. And defining the other side. Flip the paper over. Democrat. Most commonly drawn picture for Democrat? A question mark. They had no idea who we were. And when we started teasing it out, you know, they would say, well, you know, Democrat, I don't know who they stand for. They stand for all these different groups. They stand for black people and Hispanics and women and uh, LGBTQ and young. But like, what are they doing for me? Neither party's doing anything for me. And it became clear that both parties were completely missing the mark on answering what I think is the fundamental question of politics. Who's looking out for me? That's what people care about. That's what's given this global rise in populism so much, um, so much air, is that people feel like the system, whether it's government or politics or Wall Street or Silicon Valley or the media or academia, that the system that all these institutions are looking out for themselves and each other, but not looking out for them. And I don't think either party has done a very good job. It's what allowed Donald Trump to walk in, come down that escalator, and once he finished saying, you know, Mexicans are rapists, saying, system is out to screw you, and you need someone from outside the system to blow it all up. And for enough people, they said, yeah, yeah, that's what we need. I don't know if this is the guy to do it, but that's what we need. Um, and so trying to figure out how to answer that, was something that I was constantly trying to figure out at the DNC. But you get so caught up in the day-to-day, -day, you get so caught up in what is Sarah Palin doing in Iowa? Should we do something on that? Or what is Ted Cruz or Chris Christie? What's this thing with this bridge in New Jersey? Should we jump all over that? Um, that I wish I had had more time and more bandwidth to be able to go to those people and say, let me answer that question mark for you. Here's who we are. That you know, at the end of the day, Democratic Party is the party that has been throughout its entirety, the party of opportunity, the party that fights to give everyone an equal shot to rise to their God-given potential. I'm not trying to give you anything. I'm just trying to block and tackle for you so that you can go as, as high as you can. I'm not trying to go after the wealthy. Why? Because we all want to be wealthy. I just want to make sure that the wealthy who get there before us don't pull the ladder of opportunity up behind them so that I don't even have a shot. That's what the Democratic Party is for. And I don't feel like we did as good of a job telling that story as I would have liked to. So moving on to um, currently what you do. So besides you know being the executive director of Geopolitics, you're also a contributor on Fox. Yeah, yep. And it's been interesting to see how you reply to some people on Twitter um, and 
how do you deal with people from all sides of the spectrum, you know, not just Republicans, but also some Democrats um, that might be angry about you being on Fox um, or might be frustrated that you're saying your views on their platform or anything like that? Yeah, it's funny. I get it from both sides. I get Democrats who say, who get uh, frustrated with me because I, by going, why do you even go there? Why do you legitimize them? Um, well, you know, they are the highest rated network out there and get it by sheer numbers more independents watching than any other network. So I'm not the one that's legitimizing them. Someone's got to talk to those independents. And then I get a lot of folks on the right uh, who say, how dare you come on here and spew your liberal nonsense? Why don't you go back to CNN or MSNBC where you belong? And that always strikes me when I get someone who tweets at me saying that. Why don't you go to CNN or MSNBC where you belong? In other words, I am offended that I am being forced to hear a perspective that is different than mine. You should go someplace where your perspective is more welcome. Well, shouldn't all of our perspectives kind of be welcome everywhere? And this to me is the fundamental problem with our politics today. It's that we live in these echo chambers and these filter bubbles where we isolate ourselves from other perspectives. And when we isolate ourselves, right? Think about it. It's, it's everywhere. We live in communities surrounded by people who think and sound like we do. And we go to school or work surrounded by people who think and sound like we do. And our social media feeds are populated by people who think and sound like we do. And we get our news from places that reinforce what we already think. To the point where every input in my life it's just this, it's reinforcing what I already think. And if we're all doing that, if we're being isolated from other perspectives, then we eventually begin to demonize different perspectives. Now, there are perspectives that deserve to be demonized. I will never try to find any sort of common ground or mutual understanding with white supremacists. I'm just not going to do it. No interest in that. But if more people on my side had stopped saying every Trump supporter is a racist misogynist. We would have heard the percentage of them who weren't, who were just frustrated with the system, because we had a message for them. We had a story to tell them. We could have won them over. And if everyone who watches me on Fox News and stops screaming at me that I'm a libtard, terrorist-enabling socialist, which is a very common refrain, I guess that's in the Twitter troll talking points, um, then if they stop coming at me with that, maybe they will understand what my frustrations are today. And maybe they have something to say to me. We could engage. And I'm not looking for a common ground because we don't always find common ground. We have, we, we have had, we've been through armed conflict with ourselves as a nation. We don't always find common ground. But maybe we detoxify the air. And maybe I'm a better advocate for my side if I can get inside your head and actually understand what's motivating you as opposed to just telling you what I think motivates you. So that's why I do Fox. And it's hard sometimes. And I go on Twitter and it's a very toxic place. Um, and I found that my strategy for dealing with it is just not to engage with the toxicity. Just respond to them calmly, sometimes with some humor, sometimes just kind of amplifying the absurdity of the attack, yeah. but um, not not taking the bait, not engaging on their level. Um, and not only do I hope that 
detoxifies the air. And I've had a couple of those people actually come back at me and say, you know what? You're a good sport. And like we now have <laughs> more fun banter with one another. Um, I also find it very oddly therapeutic. And it's much cheaper than therapy. <laughs> So just moving on to our last segment, we now have a lightning round um, right. with a few questions. So first, all-time favorite Hoyas basketball player? Uh, it's hard. Um, I've got to go with three, though. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> Patrick Ewing. And then I was a student here when both uh, Dikembe Mutombo and Alonzo Mourning were here, and so I've got a soft spot for oh, that. Wow. Okay, number two. Most interesting question from a reporter on HRC 08, the campaign. <laughs> Sitting with a group of campaign embeds in a hotel bar in North Carolina a couple nights before the North Carolina primary, arguing with them about whether or not Hillary Clinton was really making a run for vice president, and them telling me that since I could not be inside her head, I could not say for certain with certainty that she was not. And I could not convince them of the absurdity of their argument that they could assert that she is even though they weren't in her head either that was maybe the most absurd argument i ever had on that race and the last one this is um, a little bit more of like a short question than a lightning round but how did you get tim kane to officiate your wedding Ah, (laughs) i asked him tim uh, i've known tim since he was the mayor of richmond he uh, was the um uh and, and running for lieutenant governor when i was working for mark warner he was our running mate i came back i worked for him he is such a special person. I don't. Whatever your politics are, wherever you are on the ideological spectrum, you want more Tim Kaines in public life because he's coming at it from the perspective of a servant leader. Even if you disagree with him, you know his heart's in it in the right place. He's also a very spiritual person. And my wife and I come from very different faith backgrounds. I I was I, I came from a Muslim family. My wife grew up in an Orthodox Jewish family. And when we decided to get married, we are like, well, how do we do this? Um, and we said, you know what? Let's find the most spiritual guy we know who can navigate that. And it was Tim Kaine. And we asked him not because he was the sitting governor of Virginia. We asked him because he was Tim. And he did such a beautiful job helping navigate all of all, all the complexities of, a, of an interfaith marriage. Um, and to this day, I still uh, uh, think it was one of the most special um, uh, services I've ever been a part of or witnessed. It was, it was really nice. Well, thank you so much to Mo Lathy, Executive Director of Geopolitics, for coming on the podcast today. I love Fly on the Wall. I want everyone to subscribe to it. It is one of the things I am most proud of here at Geopolitics, and I'm honored to now finally graduate up to the ranks of guests. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening. Make sure to subscribe to us on iTunes and follow us on social media at Fly on the Wall Pod on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook.